Hey there, all you EM transporters out there in podcast land. Thank you for placing me into your earbuds, letting me tap into your Coachella and be absorbed by your brain, because today we are going over some awesome topics, one being DSI. Now, before we get into DSI in its entirety, you need to know this. I am not a doctor. I am a flight paramedic. I am also an M critter and a farmer. And for those of you that listen to medical podcasts, you'll you'll understand what that is. But I enjoy critical care medicine, and I enjoy flight medicine, and I enjoy all aspects of patient care. But that does not mean that I have the authority to give you any medical advice, and you guys go out and do that. What I'm going to give you is some education on what is out there right now. And this episode in particular is about a new concept that was created by one of my heroes, Dr. Scott Weingart, from the MCRIT podcast and blog. It's called DSI. Now, I personally have never done DSI before, but its concept is relatively simple. So I, I, I believe if we get the word out there enough, it'll be better absorbed into the community and into medicine and better practiced if we all understand what it is and how it could be acclimated to patients. Now, I will not pretend to know everything about DSI, because frankly, I don't. And I've never practiced it before, but I have done some extensive research on it. Everything that's that Dr. Scott Weingart has put out there, all of his lectures, all of his uh, podcasts on it I've listened to, I've, I've, I've reviewed his paper that he's put out there from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, which was excellent. But it is expertly explained by... Scott Weingart himself on the MCRIT podcast and on the blog and also on the farm podcast with Min Lakong. So I'm going to put all those links in the show notes. So you guys, after you listen to this, go check out the, or even before, you know, stop listening. Go check out all of his podcasts, all of his lectures and all of, you know, the, the literature that he's put out there on DSI and then come back and listen to this because what this is, is a little bit of a pre-hospital an interfacility transport view on how we can acclimate it into our practice. So what is DSI? It sounds a lot like RSI or RSA, Darren Brody's baby child. Let's break down these acronyms. RSI, Rapid Sequence Induction or Rapid Sequence Intubation for us pre-hospital and emergency transport professionals. RSA is rapid sequence airway. Now if we go to DSI, delayed sequence intubation. Now what does that mean? That that means there's a delay on it. The way I break it down and the way they explain it and how the protocol actually works, it just sounds like a slowed initiation of RSI. Well, what does that mean? Well, the way it's explained in all the research that I've gotten, it's sedation or disassociation plus preoxygenation. And I'll explain it first before we go into the patient population that it should be acclimated to. Because if you get a good oversight of what it actually is, I believe that you'll be able to fit your own patients and be able to come up with the idea of what patient population this can actually fit in. So sedation and disassociation. Let's break down those words again. 
sedation and disassociation because in this podcast we use them a lot and they have some important meanings. Sedation is a calm state. You know, when you have your panic attack patients, you want to sedate them. When you have combative patients, you're trying to sedate them. Now, what about disassociation? Disassociation means an out-of-body experience. It's something that a lot of the stoners might talk about when they think, oh man, I was out of my body. I could tell you one time when I was out of my body was when I was in the ring and I was getting the crap kicked out of me and I just saw myself outside of my body looking down on the ring. That was an out-of-body experience. I was disassociated from the state I was in now. And there are a lot of drugs that can do this. Mushrooms being one of them. But the one we're going to talk about today is ketamine. So as a lot of you might know, ketamine actually used to be a street drug called Special K. A horse tranquilizer. But this is a dissociative drug. And that's what it was used and abused for. For disassociation and an out-of-body experience. This is different than the acid or LSD that would give you an amplification of association. Ketamine gives you a disassociation. It allows the patient to not care about what's happening to their body. Now, I won't go uh, too in-depth with what the chemical profile and the mechanism of action of ketamine is because I plan on doing a drug profile on it after I get through the drug profiles I'm doing right now. But how does it attain this disassociation? It attains it through an NDMA receptor agonist mechanism. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't block pain receptors, but it doesn't block it as well as our normal opioids would. It doesn't attach to those mu receptors as readily as our normal narcotic medications. To obtain this disassociative state, the recommended dose is 1 milligram per kilogram and then subsequent 0.5 milligrams per kilograms boluses after you give the one milligram per kilogram dose. And this is, again, to effect, and every patient is different, and of course it's a weight-based medication, but you can they recommend it being given IM, IV. And I had a little bit of a question in this for intranasal. Now, this wasn't really discussed in the paper or any literature that I found because most of the time, if you can't get an IV, you could just shove it into their deltoid. But if you didn't want to use a needle altogether, would intranasal medication administration work? And I did a little bit of research and I found some papers that actually used ketamine intranasally. And it was in procedural sedation for children, but there wasn't much research done on adults. So again, to reiterate, the research that was put out there, they only used IV and IM, intravenous and intramuscular. But this drug's chemical profile will allow it to be pushed IV, IM, IN, IO, and rectally. So now what do you do? Your patient is successfully disassociated. Now you're going to pre-oxygenate the patient. Pre-oxygenation or just oxygenation in general. The reason they put the pre-oxygenation in there is because that is what this is all about. You are still going to get a tube. It's called DSI, delayed sequence intubation. They are still going to get a tube, so you're going to pre-oxygenate them before your attempt to get plastic in between their vocal cords. So how is this achieved? 
How are they going to get this patient pre-oxygenated? Well, they do it a couple different ways. One, they give the patient a nasal cannula, bump it up as high as they can. I believe they say to 15, which will pretty dry out their their nasal membranes and you know might have a nosebleed here or there, but pro- most likely not. I, I don't think that'll ever happen. It just might sting a little, but again, they just be- give them some ketamine, they'll be fine. And on top of that, you put an NRB and crank that up to 15. Now, that's one way of doing it, and that's a great way of doing it. One, because as soon as you're ready to intubate, you take off that NRB, you attempt to move structures within inside the airway. That nasal cannula is still giving them oxygen. That's called apneic oxygen. So after you induce, you paralyze, and you're about to get your tube, they still have oxygen being pushed into their hypopharynx, hopefully going into their trachea, and not at not too high of a pressure to insufflate the stomach. That's called apneic oxygenation. Now, one thing they didn't mention on this is what kind of nasal cannula they use, which, again, a nasal cannula is normally just a regular nasal cannula, but there are special nasal cannulas out there. It's an ETCO2 monitoring nasal cannula, and these are the only ones that I use on my plane or on the bus. Because, one, it can administer oxygen just like a normal nasal cannula would, but it also monitors end tidal CO2 readings, both capnometry and capnography. So I would recommend using this on uh, every patient that you can that has a respiratory issue that needs to be oxygenated, that, that is just not looking good. Before you get a tube, always have this on them. So what have we covered? Well, we've covered the NRB plus ETCO2 nasal cannula method. We've already covered apneic oxygenation. So once you induce and you paralyze the patient and you're about to get your tube, you're administering oxygen throughout the entire treatment or at the entire procedure. But there is another way that we can oxygenate. CPAP. It's a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation method. And almost all providers today have CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure capabilities or machines. But if you don't, there are some great ways to sort of DYI make your own CPAP. Have I had to make my own CPAP on the fly in the rig before because we didn't have a machine or the machine was broken? Yes. And there are some great tutorials on uh, MCRIT's blog site and uh, I really, really recommend you guys and go go in and see that. Again, it'll be in the show notes so you guys can find out how to do all this on your own. Regardless, if you, if you have the CPAP machine, if you have a disposable CPAP, if you're using a vent, or if you have to makeshift a BVM and strap it to a patient's face. One thing that is really hard and fast and that they don't recommend you going over 15 centimeters of water. It needs to be 15 or below, and that's most protocols. My protocol state not to go over 15 and that you go up from, you know, 5 to say 7.5 to 10 and go up as needed. But as soon as we sort of break a certain pressure barrier, our cardiac sphincter, our esophageal sphincter that sits right above our stomach will actually open and it'll give way to, to a certain amount of pressure and we'll start to insufflate the stomach. And then what happens? Then we get a risk of aspiration. Then we get a, a distended abdomen and we're not able to ventilate us properly. So, so be really cognizant of how much pressure, if you are going to use CPAP in lieu 
of the NRB. And remember, regardless if you, if you use CPAP or the NRB, always use end tidal CO2 monitoring. It won't break the seal, and it is an, an important measuring tool for measuring the patient's ETCO2 capnography and capnometry readings. Put it on your patients. And then what? So now your patient, you know, wasn't oxygenating so good. You delayed sequence intubated this patient. You're, you're, you're delaying your RSI. You've disassociated them. You've pre-oxygenated them. They're at 100%. They're at 98. They're at whatever, as long as it's above, you know, their, their 78 that they had before. And they're no longer, you know, combative or trying to bat shit away from you. Then what? Then you continue with the RSI. You paralyze them. You induce. You induce them. You paralyze them. You stick that tube down your throat. Their throat, and that's it. That is. That's the entirety of DSI. Like I said before, it's just a slow down initiation of RSI. Now, what are some key concepts of this? One, you do not treat this as time for you to get shit ready for the actual RSI. You treat this as every airway maintenance you have ever done. And that is, you have all of your stuff laid out in front of you. You have your suction, you have your rescue airways, you have your inducing devices, you have your BVM, you have all of your medications raring and ready to go, and everything that you need to back you up. And also, you do not leave this patient, and albeit it's really hard for pre-hospital providers and inter-facility providers to leave a patient because we are basically 24-hour babysitters that treat the patients and then stay with them through the duration of their treatment until they get to the preceding facility. But that is one point that Dr. Scott Weingart really wanted to point out. You do not leave your patient. You do not use this as time to get other shit ready. You use it as time to pre-oxygenate your patient. Another little bit of information is that you could also use different medications, but Dr. Scott Weingart doesn't really advocate for that. One, it hasn't been researched properly. Two, this ketamine is, is such a safe drug that, and it has been researched before and it has shown good outcomes, that it's one of the, one of the more safer drugs to use with a delayed sequence intubation procedure. But there is a little another nugget of goodness, a little extra bolus of phantasm that that is that is actually just amazing that I won't even mention on this podcast. That's why I, I want you to go out and I want you to listen to Scott's and and Min LeCong's overview of of DSI because there's this creamy goodness center that's at, that's in the middle of this of this DSI eclair. Not only do you get this deliciously sugar outsided coating, but also in the middle is just beautiful nugget of information. So I, I really want you go guys to go out there, guys and gals, go listen to The Farm, go listen to MCRIT, go watch his interview on the Airway World vodcast or, or videos. And it was actually just amazing. They did open questions for everybody, I love Airway World and, and all they have to offer. Love it. Listen to it. Watch it. It's on there free. I'll put up the links for you guys because I want you to get this nugget of goodness and information that comes out of this entire procedure. So we just did a really quick overview of DSI. I hope by now you guys have a good idea 
of what DSI is and what it actually means and how it could be acclimated to your patients because we haven't gone over any of that. We've just gone over the procedure of how theoretically it should work and how it's been studied before. So for the pre-hospital providers out there, I'm going to pose a question to you. Have you ever had a combative or altered patient that you have attempted to treat, but they just will not let you? I sure have, and I know a lot of you listening to me have. I bet right now you're imagining the patients that you've had to struggle with for an hour to the, to the nearest hospital. So what do you do? What, what can you do? Because most of the time, it's only you and a partner at least in the rural communities. Uh, again, in the metro area, you might have you know six people on a scene that could really help you out, but most of the time, it's just you and a partner. You're in a moving vehicle, be it a plane, a helicopter, or an ambulance, and there are some times that you just can't restrain, like on head trauma patients that have increased ICP, and if they start straining against their restraints and increase their ICP, they're going to hemorrhage out of their moramen fragnum, and they're just going to go downhill even quicker. So what do you do? Well, most protocols out there give you a chance of sedation. They, they allow you to sedate a patient, especially if they're combative, they're irate, and they're a harm to you or somebody else. You sedate that patient. We don't have necessarily the drugs, or well, most of us, especially in the ambulance section, don't have ketamine yet, and they have to sedate with benzos. So what do you do? You sedate the patient, and then you treat them afterward, after they're allowing you to treat them. And there are a litany of causes that this can acclimate from. These patients that are out there that need to be treated, that aren't letting you treat them, this is what you do. You sedate them, and then you treat them. Now I'm going to give you a beautiful case of something that I had to deal with a long time ago, and if this idea had come back then... And, or I was able to, you know, think critically enough, you know, a, a long time ago for me to able to think of this idea, it would have helped out the patients tremendously. So l let me set the scene for you. In southern New Mexico, in a rural area, you have an MVC. And it's actually two motorcycles and one vehicle. A lot of patients, I get two level one critical patients on scene. And albeit I wasn't first on scene, I was just given these patients. Unfortunately, there was no helicopter to come get these patients and the nearest level one trauma was 45 minutes away. And yes, there were level two and level three facilities closer, but these patients needed a level one trauma facility. So I actually had to go into a different state to drop these patients off. Let me set these patients up for you. They were both on the bicycle. They were both on the motorcycle, non-helmeted, going roughly, I think 30 miles an hour out, outside of a bar. 40 year old female had a broken femur, male, had a degloved occipital lobe on his cranium. So just just think of a, a degloving from the back of his neck to the top of his head, and also a broken femur. Both on the same side, patient's right. Now, both of these patients have been traction splinted. 
They have been packaged. But unfortunately, the one with the head injury just doesn't like me and doesn't want anybody to treat him. One, because he's incredibly intoxicated. He's becoming combative. His blood pressure is continuing to rise. And he is not allowing me to oxygenate him. And he's just becoming more confused and more agitated. And what does this patient need? This patient needs a tube. But unfortunately, I don't have those capabilities. He still has an intact gag reflex. He is still able to maintain his oxygen saturation. But I have a long way to go. So finally, I'm able to calm him down. I treat a little bit of his pain. And the patient with the broken femur is just doing excellent. She doesn't have a head injury. She's knocked up on some fentanyl and she's flying high. But my ICP patient is not doing too good. Continuing to be combative. Continuing to take everything off of him. So what do I do? I continue to try and oxygenate him. I tried to sedate him slightly. And it worked. The medications that I gave him really helped him out. I was able to maintain his ICP and maintain his MAP until we got to the level one trauma hospital. Now, if you guys think about what DSI is, do you think that this patient could have used some ketamine? Completely disassociate him from what's going on. Relax him and sedate him enough for me to oxygenate this patient fully. I think so. Now, back then, we didn't have this procedure but I think that th th it's a really good ideal of how DSI can help patients in the pre-hospital profession. And this is just one explanation. What the entire DSI protocol is supposed to be over, it's supposed to be over patients who will not let you oxygenate them in some way. They need oxygenated. They've already bought themselves a tube. And they are just combative, and they're out of it, and they're taking stuff off. I mean, they've had asthmatics who are hypoxic, CPOD patients who are hypoxic, ICP patients who have some TBI are hypoxic. And they're just combative, and they're not allowing you to treat them properly. That's when this great idea of DSI can be implement, implemented. So again, this was just a quick overview of what DSI is. If you want the full picture, you need to go to the MCRIT blog site. Again, I'm going to put all the links to all this fantastic information on the show notes today. I want you guys to go and check it out. It's a, it's a radical concept that is just, that's easy. We shouldn't even call it radical because it's almost common sense. You want to pre-oxygenate your patient. It's what you're supposed to do inherently. And now you're just slowing it down so you do it a little better. It's it's not that hard of a concept to wrap your guys' head around. So, uh, well, especially my head. In my head, you know, if you draw it down in crayon, I'll understand it. And so I, I, I know that everybody listening to this will be able to grasp this information and be able to swallow it down easily. So that's that. It was just a, a little bit on DSI that I wanted to to get out there before I throw you guys to an interview that I had with a critical care ER nurse that works at a level one trauma hospital. His name is Matthew Watford. And this is someone who wakes up, slips on his hakes boots, grabs a shit cup of coffee, slaps on a tourniquet and injects 12 to 24 hours of critical care emergency medicine into the largest vein 
he can find on his body. This guy breathes emergency medicine. He lives for critical care. And that's why I had him on the podcast, because he knows what he's talking about. He's, he's dived deep into the ocean of medicine, and he's really come out a champion in my eyes. So I, 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 I cannot say enough about Matthew Wadford and what a great practitioner this nurse is. And what we're going to go over in the interview that I had with him is our take on DSI. We're also going to go over a little bit of ketamine, a little bit of KFC, that ketamine fentanyl cocktail, a little bit of propofol. We go over sedation. We go over the concepts of FOMED or free open access medical education and how it should be implemented into our practice, as well as a little blurb on sea collars because he actually had a little information on that as well. So right now, please... Push your earbuds into your skull, open up your ambulance doors, increase the volume in your hangar, and get ready for the conversation of critical care nurse Matthew Watford and flight paramedic Charlie Avaringa. I'll see you guys on the other side. Matt A. Sweetheart. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for that, that compliment. That was really nice of you, man. Oh, yeah, man. So, uh. Yeah. So, man, DSI, yeah, no, nobody's doing it at largely because people can't even really manage an airway appropriately during RSI, let alone doing something like that. Well, but it um, seems. It seems pretty good. I'm just trying to think of patients where DSI would be better than RSI. And I know that there are some. There are probably a lot, maybe even all. But and, 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 and so the main idea behind a delayed sequence intubation, right, is that it's, it's like completely 100% oxygenating this patient prior to um, to intubation, facilitating intubation. So that, I think that's, right, is that like the cornerstone of it? Yeah, and you're supposed to do that anyway before you RSI somebody. Yeah, but, yeah, and, and that, that's what I thought too. So then what they're saying is that DSI is good for patients that, for whatever reason, you can't be like say they're combative head injuries or whatever. And and we've seen those patients that needed to be tubed but are, are combative and right. are just, like, out of no So, yeah, so there's no way you're going to bag them. There's no way you're going to keep a non-rebreather on them. And so unless you... you I, I was going to say unless you restrain them. You know what I yeah, mean? Would, yeah, but, man, that's... And then you wouldn't want to restrain a head-injured patient anyway. I'm Yeah. At, at least yeah. That, that wouldn't be... Good for them. Yeah, yeah. It may be necessary, but I don't know how good it'd be. But uh, I don't even think these are my pants. Oh, bitch. So, uh, man, that's pretty sweet shit. So, uh, so all, the, all they're saying is disassociate them with some ketamine. Once they're disassociated and let you do so, and 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 you're doing stuff to them, to them, 
then put the put the NRB on them, put the you know CPAP or BiPAP on them, completely oxidate them, and then just go through your normal RSI or continue Correct. with your normal RSI. Apparently, now you know this 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 whole thing about ketamine being an analgesic. I'm you know I'm really I'm just not seeing it. You know I mean yes. Granted, the patient does not remember experiencing the pain, but I see some pretty fucking gnarly interactions and vital sign changes when we do conscious sedation, like big time. Like, I'll see patients' fucking blood pressures go through the roof, and they'll pack up. And they're clenching their fists, and they're fucking in pain. Like like when you're trying to reduce a shoulder or a fucking ankle. But I've, I've never seen somebody just straight up out with ketamine. Just haven't seen it. And I've been on like six conscious sedations thus far. They've all used ketamine. Good doses of ketamine, you know, one to two milligrams per kilogram. That, I mean, that, that's a solid dosing regimen for ketamine. That, that's a pretty... Pretty good dose, you know, and I'm just like, they still, man, they fucking clench their fists, they scream, they fucking, you know, they tack up, their fucking face gets all red. I don't know, man. Well, so, and, and you know, I actually did some, some research on ketamine because I mentioned it, I think, in one of the airway podcasts that I've had. But uh, it, it's not, it's not you, it, I mean... It, in 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 some of the you know some of the papers out there they state that it, that it is used you know in sedation but also as a painkiller you know as an analgesic but mainly it's an NDMA receptor agonist okay right and, and it mildly mildly attaches to those new uh, opioid receptors so okay. so that's why. Uh, the the KFC is really is really getting popular that ketamine fentanyl cocktail because yeah. just like you were saying it, it it isn't that that great of an analgesic but it does it does attach to it mildly mildly so it, it doesn't attach to it first and foremost but there there is some mild analgesia that go, that goes along and this is just from you know, from research, and, and, I, and if I pull up my notes right here, because I, I, I wrote them down on on my Evernote, it, it says it's a weak agonist to the, you know, U-opioid and K-opioid receptors 10 and 20-fold less than the N, N, NMDAR. So so there's a, it, it, it is a pretty weak analgesic. So I understand, but, that, but that's why they're, they're coming out with the, Ketamine fentanyl cocktail. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be great. Now, how much ketamine, or, or I'm sorry, how much how much fentanyl are we talking about here? Because on some cases, on some cases, like traumas, uh-huh. that'd be a great thing to put them out. But I, in larger doses, I have seen fentanyl drop a blood pressure or two. It's really? supposed to it's supposed to be hemodynamically stable, but I've definitely hell, I've dropped it I've dropped some blood pressures with higher doses depending on how fast you push it. And sometimes I'll push it fucking fast 
because, like, just just the other day, I had a guy with a ruptured appy. Um, oh man, this 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 guy was breathing like 45 a minute, super shallow. He was sick. He was gonna be intubated. It took he he wasn't intubated for like four or five hours, but you know, I took 12.5 of Fenergan and 100 of Fen. And I fucking hit him hard. I, I, I knocked his dick in the dirt because he kept moving around. Go ahead. Ooh. Yeah, so... uh, It's, it's just like right for some coffee. I, I'm listening to you. No, that's okay. So I fucking knocked his dick in the dirt, man. And that seemed to do the trick, but it also... It, it brought his blood pressure down a little bit. You know, brought him down to about 90 or 100 systolic, down from like 140s. So... You know, it's not going to happen in everybody. I mean, I don't know. It seems like with the with the pain medications, you cannot give. Actually, with any medication, almost you you can't really give too many hard and fast absolutes about a reaction. You know, like I've used morphine a bunch. Very rarely have I seen it drop a blood pressure. Yeah, okay. Probably no more certain, maybe a slight bit more than fentanyl, but not much. Hmm. You know, well, I've been, I mean, hell, I push it every day, like three to four or five times a day. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that if you only saw it that one time in fentanyl, for the appy you had, then I, 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 that's not a large enough, you know, population for, I think, I think, I think for that, for that feeling that you have, that, 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 you know, that, that you believe that it drops blood pressure more than any of the other ones. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it does any more than the other ones, but I've also heard people say that fentanyl does not, like, in in absolute, oh, it is, is hemodynamically stable, and I don't agree. So that, and that, that's a fair statement. I, I completely agree with that statement, and that, that's sort of the, you know, that that is the 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 key in emergency medicine that there is no hard and fast, or even in medicine in general, that, that you can't have, you know, statements like that saying that there will never or have never been X, Y, or Z. So patients have, you know, subtle reactions. To different drugs. I mean, if you were to receive fentanyl and I were to receive fentanyl, there would be a definite change in the way our bodies would react to it, albeit a lot of the population would react the same, but not everybody is the same. So so I agree with what you're saying. There can be uh, blood pressure changes in a small amount of patients who take in who take in fentanyl, and is it a risk that that you're willing to take, and that that we sometimes have to take on patients we're giving this to? Sure. Do you have to be cognizant about it and just be ready? And just be like, listen, this is the first time this patient has received fentanyl before, and you know, uh, I, I need to be ready for it. I, I, there was a um, did I, did I tell you about a, a shoulder dislocation from this woman fell off of a tractor? And she said she was allergic to morphine, but and so I gave her fentanyl, and her heart rate dropped to thirty. Wow! Oh yeah, God damn. Her her heart rate dropped to thirty, but what she didn't tell me is that she she's she receives a litany of pain meds 
from her recent endoscopy, uh, I don't know, maybe about a week or two ago, and it had the same effect. So she she wouldn't, because I told her, I said, have you ever received morphine or fentanyl? She knew that she had gotten fentanyl, or excuse me, morphine when she got her endo, and she didn't want to tell me that it's all pain meds that do this to her, that lower her 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 um, resting heart rate to 30s, to the 30s range, and that it, it, regardless of what uh, opioid I, I were to give her, that it, it would have happened. But she didn't tell me because she wanted the payment because her shoulder was dislocated. So, so was she dynamically uh, stable with a heart rate of 30? Yes, 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 yes. But I took all the precautions, you know. I already had an IV in. I already put the pads on her. I, w- I, I got stuff, you know, ready for me to either synchronize her or push atropine or, or all this stuff. But she was relatively stable and uh, and was just in more pain than anything because I couldn't give her any more pain meds. I, I just couldn't. And, and, it, and it was really frustrating. That um, yeah, and a really good choice. Yeah. Wait, what, wait, what was that? Well, that might have been aggressive. I don't know. If that, I mean, maybe. For what? I don't know. To give ketamine, maybe super low dose, but I don't know. Well, and, and that's the thing. Uh, so ket- when we talk about ketamine, and when I hear a lot of the accounts from, you know, uh, doc- or I think Min Lekong actually talked about it recently on his podcast about, you know, being on ketamine. And if you remember, you know, getting high with any of the other disassociative drugs that you, you know you've done in your in your career, <laughs> you know what I mean. You 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 feel everything that's happening around you. You're not disassociated from what's happening around you, but you could still uh, operate. You know, uh, you still are sensitive to touch and and feel and everything that's going on around you. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So so it's more. It, it's a it's a visual, mental you know disassociation, but that doesn't mean that your neurons aren't you know, being able to sense that you're being touched or that your your larynx is being displaced or, 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 or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, and I almost do want to think that depending on the procedure that you do, that ketamine alone, maybe ketamine itself does not raise intracranial pressure, but the fact that you are just dissociated and not protected against autonomic reflex, maybe some of those autonomic reflexes might, like maybe during intubation or during during some of these things, maybe those things might cause increased ICP. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Had, like, I don't know. There's so many different little uh, things, so many different little cocktails you can do. But I was, and what, one thing I'm interested in is ketamine for post-intubation sedation. Yes, yes. I think we yes. talked about that or something. something. Yeah, Actually, I, I think we might have talked about that because one of the flight medics I, I'm rolling with, he he flies for another company, and I forget forget which one it is. What's but that's name? what... Say it again? What's his name? Uh, his name is um, uh, Kevin, Kevin uh, Durst, I believe. Kevin D. Okay. Yeah, re- really smart cat man, and and we we click on a lot of levels because he he's one of those high octane guys, 
And uh, what he does is he actually uses um, ketamine post-sedation. So after they tube, they use it post-sedation. And now, you know, with the new fentanyl, uh, you know, um, the KFC being thrown in there, he's looking at, I believe, get, giving them, getting them to use fentanyl along with the cocktail. But what he does is he actually puts 300 milligrams of ketamine into 50 cc's and he runs it through a pump at 6 mg's per cc and, and there's a bunch of like so I had to like look up, like I did the math on what he did you know on, on how he how he runs it I mean does and, he do a weight based dosing or does he just do a straight 300 6 cc's and then titrate it to effect well no uh, yeah exactly so what he does is he actually Sets it, sets it to a rate and sees how the sedation is going to go. So his his sedation rate is 0.25 cc's per kg per hour. So what that, that in turn comes out to is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. 1.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And uh, I went on to uh, MCRIS and because he had this awesome paper on it. And they're doing, some people are doing two milligrams per kilogram per hour. Some people are doing four milligrams per kilogram per hour. And there's just a lot of research uh, out there on the ketamine infusions post-sedation. And uh, I think they're coming out with positive results except for the um, the uh, emergence. I think it's called emergence when they come out of it, when they get extubated, when they get off of all the sedation and, they're you know, they have hallucinations and X, Y, and Z. And that's why they're pushing uh, midazolam through that. Okay. Now, what about just fentanyl? I know that I personally have had great success with straight fentanyl. Hmm. For the most part, there's been a um, now. You know, usually, depending on what we tube the patient for, but if they're but if they're vitally stable, intubated patients, you know. I'll give what usually point one to point two, or no, I'll probably give about one to two mics per kilo IV push, Q two okay. hours, and if you could set that up as a drip, you know, a hundred mics an hour or something like that, you know, one to two mics per kick per hour, then. I think that would work really well. I mean, I've, I've had patients full on up, like reaching for the tube, and as soon as I hit them with the fentanyl, out for like an hour and a half, two hours. From an really? IV push of like 100 mics, straight fentanyl, nothing else, they're out. That doesn't sound that bad. And, and you know, we we use it a lot in conjunction with other things. So when we go and, and pick up patients, uh, they they tend to n not be on fentanyl at all, uh, and and they'll still be you know sedated, and so they'll be on just a propofol drip. And uh, we went to pick up this ARDS patient, and they were just on a propofol drip, but they were awake, able to answer yes or no questions, but still intubated. And so it was very odd for us to see that because, again, propofol doesn't, uh, again, block a lot of those uh, pain receptors that, 
you know, we're, that we're used to seeing with narcotics. Right. So uh, what we tend to do is uh, always push fentanyl uh, for sedation and uh, uh, pain medication administered for for opioid uh, um, agonists. So I've never I haven't used it. So with just that idea. alone, with just uh-huh. that alone, I haven't used it with just that alone. Now, I mean, I would agree that for transport, you want somebody good and out. You want somebody good and snowed. Yeah. It seems to be just safe so that we don't have to fucking reintubate in the, in the plane. You don't got to mess with anything. They're out. You're good for transport. But one of the beautiful things about, about propofol that I love is the ability to titrate to alertness. So... For example, you can push a ton of fent, or I'm sorry, push a ton of propofol, knock them out. Uh-huh. All right. You can keep them on high doses of propofol. Now, you know, with respect to blood pressure, because it fucking will. That's almost an absolute that I will make, is it will fucking tank your blood pressure if you give enough of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, so you can have them fully out, or. Where, where where I've seen a lot of ICUs keep patients is minimally sedated. So propofol is really weird in that they'll open their eyes and respond to commands and yes no questions, but they won't. But they're relaxed enough to not go for the tube. Exactly. Yeah, you're you're right. So that so they're not up fucking tacking away, coughing, bucking the vent, nothing like that. So they're like they're minimally aware. It does not provide for pain control, but 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 when they're long term in an ICU, I think that's better management of a patient is keeping them just enough propofol or just enough sedative to keep them calm and comfortable, not overly sedated. Okay, that and that's fair. And but but you did make the point that when. You know, in the back of an, in the back of a, especially a plane or, or a helicopter going, you know, 500 miles an hour, oh, it's important. Fuck. It's important that they need to be snowed. Uh, I mean, for that, yeah, for 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 that purpose, I would probably ditch the propofol altogether, because another thing is that they will wake up with min, with a lot lower stimulation than with exactly. any of the sedation package, like. Exactly. Can, exactly. Yeah. So, even heavily, quote unquote, even on high doses of propofol, you can usually wake somebody up depending on how they how they're taken. But you can usually wake them up a bit. Like you would be chewing through a fucking lot of propofol to keep them dead snowed for a long transport, and that yeah. may not be that that may not be wise. So that, that's why we that's why we double it up. You know, we keep them on the propofol. That, that's that's all good and well, but we also give them the fentanyl drip. And and I, I think we do do it because uh, we actually just got um, the fentanyl large uh, large bag, so we could actually make it whatever concentration we want through whatever pump we want. We just need to do the math right then if we want to put it in a hundred ml bag, a two fifty ml bag. We get we get as long as it's I I I think you know 100 mcg uh, per hour. You know, 
roughly r- roughly around that amount, or 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 uh, you know, if you wanted to do a weight based one to two one to two MCG per kg, you know, roughly per hour, I, th- I think would be okay. Yeah, I think it'd be great. I don't have a lot of experience with fentanyl drips, but the IV push, it's fucking yeah. great, man. We you but know it, minimum station, and it's very effective for us. And we're also in an ED, so. These patients are on an uncomfortable bed. It's not even close to a quiet unit. And and, and we can even see it with the propofol drip. I think we pushed one in the plane, or, or excuse me, in the ambulance, because they were uh, we we were bringing them out and they were on the propofol drip and they just started, you know, pulling at the tube, becoming more. And the propofol was still going, but they were just becoming more and more, you know, alert. And, right. it, and it just and it just you know it isn't safe to have them in there like that. I'm really interested in post sedation packages myself because we all the time have residents that don't know what to order. They they just don't know fucking. They have no idea what to use for a post sedation medication. Yeah. So I'm even thinking about providing a little sheet with different cocktails, so to speak, different dosing, indications and contraindications, and then expected clinical effects. Or this one works great, it provides pain, you know, and just how to write the order. You know, like I would love an order for 100 mics fentanyl, IV, Q-hour, PRN, yada, yada, yada. You know, Uh and that's it. And then every hour I can go to the Pixis if my patient's getting fucking agitated, you know, because they're only in the ED for a few hours most of the time, you know, and I, I can go hit them with some fentanyl and call it a day. Yeah. yeah it, w- w- do they already have, like, papers like that? No. No, no. not at all. In the ED. They have mm-hmm. papers like that in... Like for our trauma order sheet, yeah. But it's not for post sedation; it's for pain. And most of the doctors do not know that the order sheet says, you know, there, there, there's a big one that says 100 mics of fentanyl. You know, 100 mics of fentanyl times one now, but they don't ever read the second part, which says and Q1H as needed. Q1 what? I'm sorry. Q1 hour. Oh, Q1 hour. hour. So it's like, fuck yeah, man, that's a sick little deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that as needed adds a lot. You know, so we use that, but, I mean, I'm a big fan of things revolving around fentanyl. I can't really think of a contraindication to fentanyl other than a direct drug allergy. Well, you know, I've been a huge fan of it since we, since we got it on the on on the trucks, and uh, especially it's it, you know it's use intranasal pushes, uh, and I and I am for for kids, uh, because because I do think that it has a, some somewhat of a less systemic effect on their vasculature. Again, the, the only reason I'm I'm getting that is from is from literature and you know hearsay saying that oh yeah you know it has a Less of a histamine release, you know, lessening 
the amount of a blood pressure drop, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I, I, I think it's a, it's a great proponent to be behind uh, uh, fentanyl is. So, so I, I'm, I'm there with you, man. But can we get back, can we get back to something real quick? Because I'm having, because uh, I read the paper on DSI. Were you, did you able to read the paper? I read the I I read the uh, the truncated version. I didn't go deep into like the methods and everything else, but I read the abstract, like the results and things. Yeah. Well, you know, I was also reading some reviews of it online, uh, and one of them tended to be a little negative, and I was like, man, you know, let let's look at it from from this point. And he, had, you know, he said. Uh, it, there wasn't that big of an end, you know, that that much people. But again, that that doesn't matter. But what he was, what 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 his point was, is that he was showing. Uh, he was like, listen, this is this is all great, well and good, you know, of, you know, do, practicing DSI and practicing getting them ketamine, and getting them oxygenated, but it, it's not widely used right now. And this paper isn't going to change. Uh, uh, their practices for whoever reads it, and I was like, man, you know, I just, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't write anything back. I just sort of understood, you know, where they were coming from. But the the idea that this that you have to have literature backing why you're doing something is kind of it kind of it kind of blew my mind a little because do you know what I'm saying? Do you get? I do, and I. I'm actually uh, susceptible to this. Like, remember the whole sea collar thing? I'm fucking texting you about sea collars belonging in the trash, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, what was that? Well, yeah. Yeah, man, I don't know. I think right now because I'm A, very new, and B, a uh, new to foam, and, you know, I, I tend to put these vocal foam advocates on a pedestal, right? So guys like Ketamon... Guys like E.M. Swamy and Scott Weingart and Cliff Reed, I tend to put them on a pedestal and almost say, okay, well, if they're going to say something, it must be gold. It must be true. Yeah. I don't need to really do much about it. And that's not healthy. I think that most of the people who are not quick to adopt are people who've been in the business a while, who've seen yeah. a lot of things change and they when you know they will change their practices but it's going to take a lot of strong evidence i don't think that i'd ever be that extreme because you know in my opinion messing around with post sedation stuff ketamine things like that it's really not going to put any patient at greater risk if you hit somebody with ketamine before you intubate them that's not really going to change much you know, it's not going to make it hard to bag them. It's not going to do anything. They're going to lay there and just breathe, which is kind of what you want them to do. Exactly. Even that, after... Sorry, go, go for it. But, but that, that's what he, that, you know, I think that's what he was going for. It's that whole non-invasive positive, positive pressure ventilation. You want them to be disassociated so you can oxygenate them with, you know, whatever, whatever methods, NNRB yes. and a nasal cannula. A, a uh, BiPAP machine, just regular bagging, and then you go to the intubation. Yeah, I mean, it makes a non-baggable patient baggable. I have seen countless traumas come in, in all ages, 
head injuries or just from straight fucking pain, just unmanageable. You're just like motherfucker. You it's taken four people to keep them on the on the stretcher because yeah. they're just going to rise around and fall off. Yeah, they're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to do anything. But they're all fucked up. GCS is seven, six. You know, they're not responding to you. They're just screaming. They're just fucking. Ugh. So for somebody like that. What we normally do is just straight RSI, but when you enter the straight RSI deal, you're kind of, I view it as kind of going, going, you, you know, like tipping your skis down that steep double black diamond. Once you start going, you're fucking committed. Yeah, like yeah, you you don't have time to assess the airway, plan nothing. You fucking just get them done. You get them out. You push the yeah. accommodate, fucking relax. But with the accommodate, they kind of quit breathing too. Their respiratory drive goes through the floor. So you know, it's kind of like fuck. At that point, you're bagging without them helping you. So you're bagging against resistance, which I think poses a greater risk of gastric insufflation, yada, yada, yada. But then you push your paralytic before you get a chance to really adequately preoxygenate these people. So I think the ketamine, if it works well, should be great. You know, I people definitely calm the fuck down. They, they don't ever fight when you're trying to... Uh, re, you know, fucking realign a jaw or anything like that. They're just in pain, but they're not, like, combative. They're not pushing you away. They're not fighting you. They just fucking hurt. And that's it. They're really compliant patients, but they, they you know. So I think I adopted the, the C-color argument too, too wholeheartedly. Like, I know that Mariam will take a C-color off of, a, of an intubated trauma patient with a head bleed. And and that's fair. That and but I, I and I, I would back that because there's physiological evidence behind that, right? You you're able to explain to me the physiological reasons of compression of the carotid arteries while increasing its ICP, and 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 that, that I think that that'd be okay. But to just disband C collars altogether. I haven't seen the the research to back that. Right. right. And I and I agree with it. I mean there is no research either way, but it does also make very good sense to keep the neck immobilized during transport, bed transfers, things like this. It's like, man, if you're not gonna use a fucking uh key collar, then you had better use something. You know, because well, you want their neck moving around. Well, can you can you explain to me why everybody why why this whole why there's a large upheaval to get rid of sea collars? I think, from what I know, and I haven't devoted any serious time looking into it lately. From what I know, it's it's those very reasons. It's the patient discomfort. It's the airway compromise, which I've seen a lot of airway compromise on patients who are awake talking to you, C-spine C, C, C spine precautions are still in place because we're waiting on the official read or whatever. 
Uh-huh. And they're saying they fucking hate the thing. You know, it's it's uncomfortable. It hyperextends the neck. Some patients have verbalized that it is difficult to breathe. Um, you mm-hmm. Giving them PO medications, like PO pain meds and things, are risky. Yeah. I mean, and, it's basically like getting choked by a midget for for however long you have it on there, right? Right, right. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, for those patients, I can see, I would love to fucking take the C collar off. It would, would, would be very nice. But, I mean, I think those are the reasons behind it. And because most people don't have C-spine injuries. I mean, and a lot of the most common C-spine injuries, your transverse spine fractures and shit, movement doesn't make a bit of difference. The patient yeah. can move all at once. You know, it's just a spine, it's just a transverse fracture of one of the C-spines. You know, where you really don't want them moving, I guess, is where you have, like, displacements, compression fractures or birth fractures of, of your C-spine or, um, you know, like where the bone is, like, where one bone is in the anatomical position and then the bone above or below it is translated back or forward or to the side to where it's actually causing spinal cord compression. Okay. Those are the patients you don't want to moving, and those are fucking rare. I mean, I've seen a lot of C, I've seen a lot of thoracic spines like that, but not a lot, but a few. So, so would you say, you know, knowing all that, would you do? Do you still believe that? I mean, when so what I'm trying to get at is, you know, when you say you jumped on the bag wagon of, you know, no no C collars on anybody, and you sort of you know, put it out there that you believe in that, do you still practice it? You know what I mean? Well, now, to be fair, I can't practice fucking anything, and that's why I'm going to medical school. <laughs> I, can't fucking, I can't fucking practice a damn thing. Um, you know? But, well, well to, I, a, to I, an extent. I, to an extent. Yeah. Huh? I said to an extent. Right. So, I, yeah, I can't practice I can try to influence a little bit, and that's about as long, that's about as hard as I go. But I don't throw a C-collar on, I wouldn't throw a C-collar on all traumas. I would, like, I would probably stricken up, I would make the criteria more strict. I'd throw mechanism of injury. You know how we have mechanism of injury um, as part of our trauma classification? Yeah. You know, yeah. I would do the same for C collars. You know, somebody complaining of neck and back pain who was in a who was the restrained driver of a fender bender. You're not fucking getting a C collar. And, and and that 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 there's an algorithm now for for most EMS companies uh, that if they have that low mechani- mechanism of injury, then they don't get a C collar, or, or or no, they don't get a backboard. They don't get a backboard because backboards just got. In, in the EMS world, backboard within the past year, backboards are out out of the out of the um, uh, you know out of the realm of treatment, but right. they still get a C collar. So in lieu of a backboard, they get a C collar. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, I think that's fucking stupid. But um, not a not a lot of um, you know paramedics or EMTs 
or you know pre-hospital providers in general get a lot of training on clearing a C-spine. You know what I mean? Walking down each each vertebra and 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 assessing right. it for you know any I mean, movement. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that you know, and I probably need more education on this, but I'm going to be honest and say that you know. Our physicians at our hospital follow the nexus criteria for uh, clearing C-spine. You know, and they got to satisfy all this shit. BGCS 15, they've got to have no distracting injuries, yada, yada, yada. So, but I think that education, what is the, the amount of force and the type of injuries that it takes to create an actual C-spine injury are pretty fucking high. A hell of a lot higher than a car crash at, you know, a rear end at 20 or 30 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour in traffic, especially yeah. if you're restrained. It takes a fucking lot more than that. But remember, people have uh, genetic diseases that, dis that, uh, that, you know, has bone degradation and can have, you know, slip discs. People have terrible cartilage, terrible, you know, muscle rigidity. So there's a, there's a lot of other factors that go into... You know, I know, but I just haven't seen it. I just haven't seen yeah, it. And, like, yeah. what, I mean, there's there's data out there saying that less than 4% of all people of of all traumas have an actual C-spine injury. Yeah. Less than 4%. Yeah. Or about 4% or something like that. So it's kind of like, it's still, dude, it takes a lot. It's incredibly so, low. And, and what we're trying to do is make sure that our next patient isn't one of those 4%. You know what I mean? That, that, yeah. That's why we do a lot of a lot of things, uh, preventative-wise, in 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 medicine, and it's and it's because it's so catastrophic. If they were to have, you know, some sort of C-spine event, or they were right on the cusp of it, and then we jostled them in some way, or you know, the EMS crew didn't didn't pick them up correctly, or whatever, blah blah blah, and and, yeah. and they became one of that four percent. That life uh, is now uh, detrimentally you know, affect it. Yeah. You know what kind of immobilization device I do like? What? I don't necessarily like the backboard, but either a full body splint or one of the scoop stretchers. Oh, you like because that? Yeah. I think it's valid. You know, the backboard does serve a good purpose, especially in sick patients of easy transfer. Yeah. You yeah. know, you. I mean, from, from the EMS cot, to the ER stretcher is effortless with the backboard. If that but person had nothing and just a draw, I mean, a draw sheet would work, but I don't know, it makes it really easy to fucking safely transfer a patient from one bed to another. Well, you know, um, man, it should be easy with just the sheet as well. Yeah, I mean, that's it, true. It, it's relatively easy with just the sheet. And the whole thing about the backboard is that you know, it, it caused a lot of accessory damage when they didn't have any to begin with. And we were just putting it on everybody. They're getting pressure ulcers. They're getting, yeah. you know, back pain, chronic, blah, blah, blah. And it was just a pain in the ass. And it wasn't it wasn't helping anything. They, I right. remember that they told us about this one awesome study that they did about putting a patient on a backboard in an MRI machine and just watching, <laughs> you know, watching watching uh, the patient either move or the the entire backboard got moved and how much the patient would move relative to that, regardless if they were stripped in, strapped in, 
you know, like by champions or not. So it's yeah, yeah. So that that's why we don't use it anymore. But I understand. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember bringing patients in on the backboard, and it, you know, just one person at the head, one person at the feet, instead of five people on 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 this cloth that's flexible. I understand. <laughs> yeah, dude. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't thank you enough for being part of the EM Transport Radio community, being excellent practitioners, going out there and practicing the best critical care medicine that you can. I implore all of you, if you haven't done it already, subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on whatever device that you use to download podcasts. But there is something that I have to reiterate for this podcast. Remember that Matthew and I are a nurse and a paramedic, albeit critical care and practitioners, but we are not advocating the use of any of this. We believe that it's a good idea, and what we want you to do is have this information out in front of you and really have the idea to go forth and research. Go look at your own practice. Go talk to your medical directors. Go see if you can implement it into your practice or into your protocols, into your guidelines for the next patient that you might see. Hey, you know, if you want to go use it as a training, you can. Go go see if you can implement it into your training for your next RSI. I know that I'm going to, the next time that I'm on shift and we want to practice our RSI, I'm going to say, hey, you know, why don't we practice DSI on these patients that could have this implemented onto them. So remember, we're not doctors, but we are practitioners that care tremendously about our patients. So go check out all the links on the show notes, enjoy them, indulge in them, bolus them into your into your frontal lobes. And remember that every patient is family. And we'll see you in the next one.